evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty in Washington, D.C. The meeting essentially looked at the political situation and essentially ECOWAS was in a position to retreat its zero tolerance for unconstitutional changes. They used the opportunity to further condemn the November 26 failed coup. Sierra Leonean President Julius Madabio meets ECOWAS regional leaders. We'll have details. In view of all the fraud that made the electoral process, we cannot recognize the fraudulent results published by the CENI. DRC opposition presidential candidate refuses to accept the outcome of the December 20 general election. So if we come together, we have a, a common goal. We all know we are being mistreated as opposition. So if we come together, I believe it's going to be sustainable because it is a fundamental right. And major opposition leaders jointly demand justice and the release of all political detainees in Uganda. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. In Sierra Leone, a delegation of West African regional leaders met with Sierra Leonean President Julius Madabu in the capital of Freetown Saturday. The ECOWAS leaders include Senegalese President Makisal, Ghanaian President Anana Akufuadu, President of the Regional Bloc Omar Aliu Toure, and the ECOWAS Commissioner of Political Affairs, Peace and Security Abdel Fatah Musa. Officials say the delegation was briefed on the political situation in Sierra Leone following the recent coup attempt. Also, Sierra Leone is expected to host an ECOWAS standby force as part of the effort by the regional bloc to help stabilize and maintain the country's peace. For more about the meeting, I reached Solomon Jamiro. He is President Julio Madabu's press secretary. The delegation met with His Excellency President Julius Madabu essentially to be updated on the political situation in Sierra Leone following the November 26 failed coup. And it was a fantastic meeting. The meeting essentially looked at the political situation and essentially ECOWAS was in a position to retrace its zero tolerance for unconstitutional changes. They used the opportunity to further condemn the November 26 failed coup and they registered um, unambiguously ECOWAS's posture, readiness, willingness to render any further assistance that Sierra Leone would require. So essentially those were the parameters around which the meeting was held. Solomon, what was the major message to the president and people of Sierra Leone following the meeting? The ECOWAS Commission President, Dr. Umar Toure, himself spoke to the people of Sierra Leone through the media. Don't forget that following the November 26th failed coup, ECOWAS actually sent a high-powered delegation here on the 27th, the following day, at the behest of the ECOWAS chairman, His Excellency Bola Ahmed Tinubu, President of the Federal Republic of Nigeria, and that delegation was actually led by President Tinubu's national security advisor himself. And the ECOWAS Commission um, president was also here. You also had the ECOWAS defense chiefs, and they were all here. And they sent a very strong message. It was a message of solidarity with the government and the people of Sierra Leone, thanking President Julius Marabio for stoutly defending peace, democracy, and constitutional order. So the meeting yesterday was essentially to reinforce ECOWAS's message, especially the principles enshrined in the ECOWAS supplementary protocol, 
on democracy and good governance, taking necessary steps to deepen the democratic culture, tenets and dividends in the sub-region, and essentially to send a clear message that ECOWAS stands by and with the government and the people of Sierra Leone, that they stand with us to defend peace, to defend democracy, to defend constitutional order. That was the message. And of course, um, President Julius Madabio thanked the delegation and also noted his government preparation to work with and host the security mission that was um, decided upon at the 64th Ordinary Session of the Authority of Heads of State on 10th December. Peter. Well, uh, Solomon, I also understand that uh, Sierra Leone will soon play host to the ECOWAS standby force. What is the importance of this and what is the current situation following investigations launched to apprehend and bring to justice what some people say are perpetrators of the coup attempt? The standby force thing essentially fits into the overall scheme of ECOWAS to actually strengthen, deepen, consolidate peace um, and, and democracy in the sub-region. So what we're seeing unfolding in Sierra Leone is just maybe a manifestation of a layer of that ambition on the part of ECOWAS. Um, I will just speak in principle to that and just to say that, and indeed this is also captured in the, in the press briefing that was eventually put out yesterday following that high-level um, discussion with His Excellency. And President Julius Marabio was, was very clear on that, that his government is preparing for that and will indeed host and work with the security mission as directed at the 64th Ordinary Session. Um, with respect to the failed coup of, of November 26, um, indeed investigations continue, suspects have been apprehended, and um, it's been the combined efforts of the security and intelligence forces, but also I, it is important to pay tribute to the people of Sierra Leone, the citizens of Sierra Leone. And, 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 and one of the things that we know clearly is that the people of Sierra Leone um, are against unconstitutional changes. And we saw that manifest November 26th. And the people of Sierra Leone have also been cooperating with the security and intelligence forces leading to the arrests of suspects. So the investigations are going on. It's a process that jealously guarded so that the integrity of the process is not corrupted and that the ends of justice are not defeated. So the process continues and indeed um, President Julius Madabio, but together with the global solidarity um, um, have spoken clearly that there should be full accountability for this. There should be due process for this. And as we know, Sierra Leone is a rules-based society. We will not have a departure from that, Peter. Solomon Jamiru is President Julio Marabu's press secretary. He spoke with me from the Sierra Leonean capital, Freetown. Liberia's president-elect says he plans to declare his assets as part of the effort to weed out corruption. Joseph Boakai says he also plans to institute a measure to ensure transparency and accountability in his administration's fight to eliminate financial wrongdoing. This, he says, he plans to do by working with international partners to audit the government and the outgoing administration. His remarks follow an exclusive interview at the viewing studios in Washington. The Electoral Commission of Liberia declared Boakai winner of the recent presidential runoff after defeating incumbent President George Weir. For more information about the fight to weed out graft in Liberia, 
Liberia, I had a sit-down interview with President-elect Joseph Buaka. Here is the conclusion of the conversation. You talked about the women. Any, yes. any plans for women empowerment in Liberia? Very much so. And, you know, um, I have worked with women. When I was uh, vice president of Liberia, one of the areas in which a lot of my first few months were utilized were with the marketing mm. association. I worked with them until we got them organized, until we got money to create a rare LMA that will become independent. That's why you see that the government, with all their muscling, they can temper with them. We made sure that there was a law firm that put together their constitution to protect them, that uh, we provided money for them to get a business entity that put them together to teach them some business. And those areas were mostly women controlled. Beside that, we intend to bring on board women, capable women. And I want to say we don't want any token relation. We want people who are competent and capable and deserve the positions they get. Gender issues have always been issues close to my heart. Let's look at the health system in Liberia. You mentioned it during your campaign. Um, a lot of people say it's either non-existent or, you know, Liberians would have to go to neighboring countries mm -hmm. or even, you know, southern part of the continent to go seek for medical attention. Mr. President-elect, how do you plan to tackle this? Because it's a serious issue. Uh, I have worked with the health sector when I was in government. And you will see that we have Jamali, where now they do... Uh, uh, people can go and do their examinations instead of going to Ghana. We have in mind to increase more of that on a regional basis to make sure that people can go somewhere instead of coming all the way to Moravia to check. Beside that, we want to opportunities for all our hospitals and clinics to be functional. People will be paid, the nurses, people all who are responsible will be looked after. Because in those who look after people, they themselves need to be looked after. But, but we want to make them function. That, that costs a lot of money. How, it how do costs you plan money. to finance it? It costs money. Mm -hmm. But let's tell me, tell you, Liberia is not working. Everything that we are doing, there have been a lot of work put in the health sector. What, how should it function? Mm -hmm. What we need in Liberia is implementation. We're not beginning as a new country. Everything is on paper. What we need is to make sure that we function according to those guidelines that have been set up. We implement those things that have been documented over the years. And I want to believe that we are not in there alone. There are partners who are anxious to see a government that is committed to, to make sure that these things function and that they are willing to work with us, even as at now, we have made a lot of contracts already for medical supplies. I have been to Arizona, Project Q, they've given a container load of medical But we have to make sure that these things reach their proper destination. You talked about uh, looking at how people voted during the last election, and analysts are telling me that it looks like the country is sharply divided. How do you plan to unite the country? And do you think there are any major takeaways from those recent elections or what other countries can learn from the Liberian recent general election? We want to thank the Liberians 
including the outgoing president, but seeing the need. I did that before. And uh, I think we all should know that we serve people and that when the time comes for us to leave, we should leave gracefully. Uh, everybody is uh, commending Liberia for that. But at the same time, the Liberians themselves were looking for a change. They were committed to making sure. I'm reflecting on the day, the night of the election. There are a lot of things that could have happened, and the Liberians stood to make sure they protected their votes. For me, this is saying to me, we are yearning for something that you said you gave us and we want it. And I believe this is the way it should go. When people want to change, give them the chance to choose their leader and to make sure that we all support that. This is democracy, and I believe in it. And I want to say we are here not to repeat those things that brothers yearning for this kind of change but to make sure that we provide that leadership. Joseph Boakai is Liberia's president-elect. He spoke with me from here in Washington. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the spokesperson for opposition presidential candidate Moise Katumbi says they will not accept the outcome of the December 20 general election. Olivier Kamitatu, also run as a candidate for parliament in Pundundu province, says the entire process lacked transparency and was bedeviled with logistical challenges and voter irregularities. His remarks come as the National Independence Electoral Commission, or CNE, is beginning to release results of the vote. Businessman and former Governor Moise Katumbi, who led the opposition party called Ensemble, was backed by several opponents, including a former Prime Minister, who dropped their own presidential ambitions to support his candidacy. Kamitatu tells me that Katumbi's group will decide its next line of action after poll observers from church groups issue their reports about the elections. You know that this electoral process, these elections were totally uh, chaotic, so... It's not fair to say that the elections were uh, credible in view of all the fraud that made the electoral process. We cannot recognize the fraudulent results published by the CENI. And uh, uh, we are convinced that what is resulting from the CENI is not credible at all. And we are going to call on the population to mobilize and to get uh, moving to defend their rights. So, but but, but uh, if you do that, aren't you going to create more trouble? You know, after a, a victory resulting from non-credible election fraud, President Chisekedi will lack legitimacy to lead the country and address all the security issues uh, in the eastern part of Congo, for example, uh, where the war continues to rage. We know perfectly well that Moïse Katumbi won in all constituencies across the country. His victory should not be subject to any dispute. We, we are waiting for uh, the report from observers coming from the Catholic and Protestant Church. Some of the opposition presidential candidates called for a rerun of the election. Is this the call of Moiska as well? Moiska to me wants credible elections. You know that by virtue of Article 64 of our constitution of the Congolese 
Since every Congolese has the right to, to defeat any individual who wants to seize power by force, Moïse Katumbi and the opposition will launch actions in every provinces of the country to demand that genuine elections be held. Well, there are avenues by which you can challenge an outcome of an election, including going to the court to address your concern about the election. Is that a path that Moïse Katumbi would like to take if indeed... No, the court... The elections were chaotic. Logistical problems caused huge delays. Even uh, the Catholic and the Protestant churches who gave an overall view of the very high level of electoral fraud. So that's the reason we say we are going to wait for the last report of the Catholic and Protestant Church's uh, observers. After that, we will take this decision. But Olivier, if people could not vote within the allowable time, the Electoral Commission has the mandate under the Constitution to extend the period to allow people to vote. Isn't that a I'm, proper thing? I'm coming from uh, the interland. In my constituency, for example, during night, the voting machines were operating on the end of the candidate of the majority. And we also seized many voting, many dozens of voting machines in the end of people belonging to the majority. It was the fraud in all the constituencies. So, uh, even if you want to extend, what are you doing night with uh, the voting machines and uh, the ballot boxes not guarded during night? Don't forget that only 1% of the population in Congo in the rural areas got electricity. So, during night, it was uh, an incredible fraud everywhere in Congo. Olivier Kamitatu is the spokesperson for opposition presidential candidate Moïse Katumbi. He also contested as a parliamentary candidate in Bandundu province in DRC. He spoke with me from Brussels, Belgium, still in the DRC. A poll observer says the situation in parts of the country is tense following this general election. Opposition groups are rejecting the electoral process, saying it lack transparency and they contend the outcome of the presidential vote will not be a true reflection of the will of the people. For more on the situation on the ground, I reached Mike Injang. He is a long-term poll observer who is Monitoring the vote. The general mood here is uh, a little bit tense and also suspicious. Suspicious in the sense that most of the voters don't have trust with the Seni, Seni officials. And like in one of the regions where a lady was seriously battered and stripped naked, one of the Seni uh, representative, she is actually the one heading the antenna in one of the regions here. She was beaten. In other areas, there were some kind of fighting. In one other police station, they saw a voting machine that was kept in a room. That machine was used for training and is not working. As reported by the chief of that center, they discovered it and they suspected that maybe. They wanted to use it to fraud the election. So they attacked the place, ramshackled it, took the machine, and went out with it. In one other police station, there was this situation where 
someone, I don't know if it was intentional, said he voted for number 20, which is a ruling president, and it's number three that appeared. So that raised some tension, and they seized the voting machine, went out, the police went out looking for them. So the atmosphere is kind of relative, depending on where you find yourself. What are some of the officials of the CNE saying about some of these concerns or the lack of trust that some have in the way it organized the general election on December 20? Actually, CNE is rejecting criticism by opposition and independent observers and candidates that the extension of voting and the organization of the election that was really chaotic and lacked credibility. So they are trying to defend themselves that irrespective of the logistic challenges, they believe the elections are credible and logistic deployment were being done at the best that they could do. Even with the delay in delivery of election materials, the kits, the malfunctioning of the equipment and especially the dev, However, Senisti believe they did their utmost best and they are still assuring the population that the elections were transparent, credible, and the population should keep calm and wait for the final result. Moise Katumbi and some other presidential candidates, including Fayulu and Dr. Dennis Mukwege, are calling for the elections to be rerun. And some of them are even saying they are waiting for poll observers to write their report about the election to decide their next line of action, including calling for demonstrations to protest against the outcome of the election results. What are you hearing on the ground? I think most people are buying that idea and like i said it all depends on the region where you find yourself in a region like where the president is coming from around the bujimai area i think is 100 percent support for the president so they will not even want to hear something like that so it all depends on where you find yourself you know like i said in one of my interviews the country is kind of being divided. It's uh, tribalistic. So where Katumbi has a large popularity, he can go to another region and he will not be received there. Like in the area where the president is coming, in most of the police station, he is having almost all the votes. And then the next person is coming with one or two votes. So that is how it is. So actually people are talking about it in different regions not in the region where the president comes from or where he has um, influence. But in addition to that, they are right. Let them wait to see what their representative will write because my observation, I don't think I will say it really meets international standard, especially where uh, I discovered that in most of the police stations, the technicians were kind of helping voters so if you are in front of the death telling the voter what to punch and then directing the voter right up to the end where they will print the slip, it shows no secrecy in the whole thing and you might be misleading the voter. So at one point, I think if they can get credible information on the ground from their representatives, it will be something to maybe challenge the election. But for sure, I cannot really speak for them. Mike Injang is a long-term poll observer monitoring the election in the DRC. He spoke with me from the capital, Kinshasa. 
This week on Straight Talk Africa, we speak with the creator of a unique documentary that sheds light on the ongoing humanitarian crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo. VOA executive producer Omari Kaseko takes us into Goma. Join me, Heidi Adams, for an intimate look at the silent war that has been going on for years on the next Straight Talk Africa, this Wednesday at 18.30 UTC. In Botswana, members of parliament are expressing discomfort with news of ongoing consultations between President Mukwiti Masisi and Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnamgagwa over plans to scrap a passport requirement for citizens of both countries. It comes after the government denied media reports that an agreement has been reached between Habaroni and Harare that would allow citizens to use their national identification cards to travel freely between the two countries. Botswana has a similar arrangement with Namibia, where both nations now accept state-issued identification cards from each other. Botswana citizens living near the border with Zimbabwe are expressing concern about the proposal. Ignatius Moswaini is the member of parliament for Francistown, the second largest city in the country, which is close to the border with Zimbabwe. He tells me his constituents are displeased with what they say is the lack of consultation from the government about the proposal. Currently, yes, there are some ongoing consultations between the President Mukwete Masisi and President Monangagwa. But what is worrying us here in Botswana is that they are not actually consulting Botswana in general. We wanted this matter to be discussed in Parliament to give the President the our feedback as members of Parliament. Now, the President has gone to consult in Zimbabwe, yet he knows that he was consulting in one of the constituencies called Tati East and uh, Bobonong, where the people rejected his suggestion of opening the borders for some Zimbabweans to come and do business in Botswana. We understand there are some other issues which might be very, very important for him to open the, the two borders. But the key issue is that you start at home to consult with all the affected parties. First, you start with the people, and then you have to consult the leadership, which is parliament and other traditional leaders, they have to be involved. Uh, the suggestion is that the free movement of people will allow um, free trade, which will be beneficial to both Zimbabwe and Botswana, create jobs for the youth who do not have jobs in Botswana. Don't you think this is a good idea? It might be a good idea, but first and foremost, but you need to consult the people who are going to be either affected by the good or the bad ideas that you may go through because first we must start it as a pilot project to see how it how it goes but we even having zimbabweans crossing into botswana with passports and everything we've been having illegal zimbabweans in botswana and uh, the situation is not nice because botswana are feeling oppressed in, mo- in most of the time on business line but the free africa trade is a good thing but you need to really consult the people who are going to be f- affected by your idea whether they're going to enjoy it or whether they're going to dislike, but you really need to get their leaders to understand. Now, I think the best thing that should be done, this matter should be discussed in Parliament before it can be taken to other countries where the president can go and negotiate his counterpart in Zimbabwe. The parliamentarians must understand this thing. They must be convinced about the whole thing. After that is when that we can go for a national talk and try to consult the whole nation 
because we are only 2.4 million Botswanas here or 2.3. But we suspect that should we open the border, we might even have 10 million people in Botswana. And what's going to happen? They are going to take our economy away. They are but, going to but, go but to their country. Yeah, but there are suggestions that the government presented in parliament to talk about the benefits that would help. And that, they said, forms part of the consultation process to begin the discussions in parliament. You are a parliamentarian, you were there. The minister gave a statement to correct that people are having the belief that President Masisi has already signed. She only went to correct that President Masisi has not signed any deal. It was a statement which was given in parliament for a period of not less than 20 minutes. You cannot just say, just because you are happy as a president, and take the whole nation to say they are going to be happy with you. We have lived along, uh, along the borders with these people. There have been so many crimes happening. So there's fear amongst Botswana. It is not that we hate Zimbabweans. We love them as our fellow African brothers. But we need a proper consultation. That's all that we need. What is the general mood in the country about this suggestion? Is it for or against the idea? since Botswana has a similar arrangement with Namibia. You know, the, the arrangement in Zimbabwe and Botswana is still, it needs to be properly ironed out. It is not the same like the one in Namibia and Botswana. You must remember that when you go to the Ogavanga area, most of those people are Namibians by nature, by origin. And the other side also, they are, they are, they are, they are, they are also Namibians. So it is easy for them to interact. But here you are talking of different tribes completely. When you go to Okavango, most of them, they speak Herero, they speak Siei, they speak all the languages, they, they almost speak the same language with those people in Namibia. They, they are relatives, they are, they, are, they are relatives in most of the time. But here in, in Zimbabwe, the situation at, at Zimbabwe is totally different because Zimbabwe is not stable like Namibia. That's the difference that we're talking about. Ignatius Moswani is a Botswana member of parliament. He spoke with me from the capital, Habaroni, in Uganda. Leaders from major opposition parties are jointly demanding justice and the release of all political detainees. The call was made during an end-of-year prayer meeting at the headquarters of the National Unity Platform, or NUP, in the capital, Kampala. They are demanding the release of all political prisoners and that the government account for those who were killed during the last general election. But critics say the opposition has often advised their members not to cooperate with the police who are investigating cases of those the opposition claims to have disappeared. For more information about the opposition demands, I reach Helen Nachimuli. She is a parliament member from the opposition NUP. Yeah, you know, they say united we stand and divided we fall. When they come together as a team to demand for the rights and, and justice of our people, I think it will work out best for us. You see, being on the opposition does not mean you have to be oppressed. It doesn't mean your human rights have to be, you know, stamped on. It means it should be justice for all. It means if somebody is opposing what you're doing, they don't oppose everything that you do, but the bad that you do. And this should teach you a lesson as government that what you're doing is wrong and shouldn't be done. But if you now come out and, you know, uh, you, you imprison people, you incarcerate them because of supporting a given party or because they don't support an individual. It is unfair. It is a human rights violation. That is why we have come together as a team to fight this fight. What do you say to officials who are of the view or ha have been saying that the NUP advised its members not to cooperate with the police who are investigating 
some of these accusations you've leveled against them. Hmm. Now that is wrong. So it is not true that the NUP is stopping their people from talking to the authorities, no. These people actually want them to talk to them, but how are the authorities doing so? Our people are in fear because they come out on television and speak and say, my so-and-so, my son, my daughter was taken on such and such a day by people dressed in uniform, or they were put in a drone. And up to now, we don't know where they are. Somebody comes out and says that the police hunts for them. They want to, you know, take them for questioning. Which questioning? They are not sure. They, are, they think they are going to be, you know, mistreated. So we, it's not that we tell them. It is the people themselves who are in fear. So they decide not to go. But the opposition, the leader of opposition, Honorable Matthias Mpuga, had a program of visiting all these households. And they have been speaking their mind. They have been saying the truth. And when these people now have seen this happen, they thought they should use this opportunity. This coming together of all opposition groups to yeah. demand for justice for how sustainable yeah. is this because no you see yeah we like you know we have different different opposition parties in this country but we have all faced the same problem the fdc was once in the leading of the opposition and they faced the same we are facing the same so if we come together we have a, a common goal we all know we are being mistreated as opposition. So if we come together, I believe it's going to be sustainable because it is a fundamental right that we are fighting for. You know, we, we, we have all been mistreated in the opposition. I believe it's going to be sustainable, leaving aside the different political aspects, leaving aside the fact that we all want to gain leadership, we all want to lead the country. We have to put that aside first. And now we focus on what helps our people because these are the people who want to lead. What do you say to critics who are of the opinion that the boycott of parliament by all opposition groups is just a mere publicity stunt to appease your benefactors abroad because you have come back to parliament irrespective of the uh, boycott that you announced will be in perpetuity until the government responds yeah. to that. But now you are in parliament uh, irrespective of yeah. that that demand not being met your response to that no you know we when we walked out of the house of plenary we had a demand our demand was for the minister to produce a statement regarding what happened to our people and this they didn't do when they didn't do we left the house we had another demand of government apologizing to the people whose whose relatives were killed or murdered you know and all that when we as opposition walk out of the house, it doesn't mean we are looking for clout. It doesn't mean we are looking for, you know, favors and all that from the people. Our main goal was for government to produce a statement. And we say, if it is not satisfactory, we shall walk out again. But we have been working on other measures, which measures I told you about one of them was to go to the house or the best people. And we got these people. Fair enough, it has been aired on television, and, and we believe our boycott parliament has done something. They have produced the statement. Uh, some people have been produced. Actually, some people were brought out of incarceration. And then uh, one, the prime minister said, she knows where some of them are. So at least we have demanded, and our demands have been somewhere, somewhere fulfilled, only that most of them haven't been fulfilled.
Helen Nachimuli is a parliamentarian from the opposition NUP. She spoke with me from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. Last month, the Minister of State for Internal Affairs, General David Muhuzi, told Parliament that most of the alleged missing persons cases have never been reported to the police. Muhuzi was responding to a statement by opposition leader Mathias Simpuga alleging that civic space is shrinking and that enforced disappearances of government critics had taken place. He also said there are inconsistencies in the numbers and statements in some reports of disappeared people. Muhuzi also stressed that family members of alleged missing persons have refused to speak with police, making it difficult to carry out investigations. Still in Uganda, the leader of the opposition Uganda People's Congress or UPC is expressing concern that lawmakers are not given enough time to scrutinize measures to make informed decisions. This parliamentarian Jimmy Akena says thwarts efforts to allow lawmakers to thoroughly examine proposals or deals before presenting their reports. For more about his concerns and what he thinks can be done to avoid future pitfalls, I read Jimmy Akena. I'm also a member of the National Economic Committee of Parliament and also the Natural Resources Committee. And in both committees, in recent times, we have had um, loans which uh, we are supposed to approve, or rather to scrutinize, and then it's sent to Parliament for approval, which normally um, you're given 45 days, but sometimes you have less than a week to go through. Um, bills, which also are supposed to be 45 days, you get less than a week. So there's often not enough time to adequately scrutinize, adequately check, do the necessary research to be able to present um well thought through report for members of parliament to make informed decisions. And I feel that this sort of pressure is somewhat deliberate and it is causing parliament to occasions approve things which under proper scrutiny would have to be thought twice about. But Mr. Akena, who is to blame for this pressure that you are talking about? Because as you know, Parliament, by the Constitution of Uganda, is an institution on its own. It's an equal branch of the three branches of government. No, you find that the executive puts pressure on the leadership of Parliament um, to expedite the reports and raise issues that we needed very quickly because of whatever reason, uh, make it like an emergency that unless this is approved, other things are going to go wrong or something, whatever. So there's pressure which is put on the leadership, which then um, comes onto the committee. And I don't feel that we're doing an adequate uh, job with scrutinizing some very important bills and also um, loans and um, uh, other instruments, which will have an effect because some of these are going to um, be for the next 20, 30 years. So it is something which... Parliament, I really feel the leadership of Parliament needs to look into seriously. What remedies are you proposing to resolve these issues? Um, I think some of it is being done such that uh, matters will not get the adequate scrutiny. Things being rushed through where you will not be able to um, see whether that, that it is truly beneficial or look at the fine print. As they say, the devil is always in the detail. But when you're rushed, you're not going to be able to have a good time to, I mean, enough time to scrutinize the detail and see where the pitfalls are and um, whether it is going to be beneficial or not. There have been cases which we have uncovered. There's one which I uncovered in the Committee of National Economy, where um, a company which is supposed to be providing a loan for the nation 
had never done any business transaction, I think over $10 million, and yet in this particular case, they're supposed to be set up, um, being able to organize in excess of $300 million for, for the country. So those, those are sort of things which um, you can approve and then you regret it later. What would be your answer to skeptics who are of the opinion that the ruling party has a majority in parliament anyway? So even if you come up with all kinds of issues, including pitfalls that you described, if the majority of parliamentarians do not really want any amendment to be done, it will not be done. So, so what is the issue here, they ask? Your response to that? Okay, if they want to do so, let them do so in the full knowledge that um, there are A, B, C, D pitfalls. There are um, terms which are not beneficial. In the current form, everybody has the ability that, no, we didn't, we, we were not informed about where the problems are. But if we have time and we can present a clear report which lays out, then it will be up to somebody's decision that, in spite of the clear knowledge that this is not beneficial to the country, I am going to go ahead and approve. Let that, that be on somebody's head. But if that information is not available, um, everybody will deny and say, no, I didn't know that this was the case. And I think even within the ruling party, although it's a ruling party, there should be people with a good conscience and people who have a direct concern as to what happens to the country and the future of the country because everything that we do will have a knock-on effect. I mean, we're not uh, going to be the last legislators, but let us do something which is going to stand the test of time, and let us think about posterity. That um, what we're doing is just not for ourselves, but it's for the benefit of the citizens and also for the future. Parliamentarian Jimmy Akena is the leader of the Opposition Uganda People's Congress, or UPC. He spoke with me from the capital, Kampala. In Nazareth, the town where Christians believe Jesus lived much of his life, Christmas celebrations have been scaled back in solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. Christian leaders told VOA it is impossible to feel celebratory at this time, while business owners say trade has plummeted as tourists and pilgrims stay away because of the war. For VOA, Henry Wilkins reports. The Nazareth of Christmas is past heaving with tourists and pilgrims visiting the town where the Bible says Jesus spent much of his life. Outside the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation, a giant Christmas tree usually stands. This year, the streets are empty. The Christmas tree is nowhere to be found. The Reverend Simeon Bachali, the priest here, explains that Christmas celebrations have been scaled back this year in solidarity with Christians and Palestinians in Gaza. It's a very bad situation, very sad situation. We see the thousands of people that died, children and uh, babies, and uh, even in Corona, we, we make a, a big tree. We celebrate, not like this year. VOA was able to speak by phone to Nabil Tarazi, a Christian in Gaza, where communication blackouts are common. He said Palestinian Christians have been trying to take shelter from the Israeli bombardment in churches. Tarazi says that there is no celebration of Christmas or New Year in Gaza and that at least 23 Christians have been killed, most of them in churches. He says there's an atmosphere of death here. 
Since the start of the Israel-Hamas war triggered by the militant group's October 7th slaughter of approximately 1,200 Israelis, Palestinian health authorities say nearly 20,000 people have been killed in Gaza. Christian leaders in Nazareth and many other Israeli towns and cities, including Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, have coordinated to scale back celebrations this year. Beit Jali says this has never happened before, since the start of the Israeli-Palestine conflict in the 1940s, but the suffering in Gaza this year is so great something had to be done. In a shop selling Christmas decorations, the owner, Joanne Bital, says the lack of pilgrims and tourists has made a major impact on trade. This year, unfortunately, because of the war, the sales dropped about 70-80%. Of course, economically, it's, it affects a lot. But uh, thank God my family is safe and here Nazareth is a safe place. So that's the most important thing. Nabila Espanoli, a peace activist in Nazareth, points out that one of the central messages of Christmas is peace on earth and says the global community needs to come together to end the fighting. And if we can, all the world unite itself with this, this message, then I think we can uh, make a change. As for Bejali, he also hopes for an end to the fighting soon, looking to Jesus for answers. And in these days we need him. We just hope and pray for Jesus to come again and to give us the peace for all this area. As Christmas draws nearer, peace in Gaza looks far off on the horizon. Henry Wilkins, VOA News, Nazareth. <laughs> This is the Voice of America, and you are listening to Nightland Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clote, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightland Africa, music from our collection. Hello, good afternoon, guys. Uh, I'm using this opportunity to wish my family of Mr. Friday, Emeka Ebo, of Enugu State, Nigeria, and the uh, family of Ms. Peter Edani, Chief Peter Edani of uh, Abia State, Nigeria. I wish them a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This opportunity to thank my family for everything they've done to me. When I was nobody, my family was swear by me. So I thank my family in a big measure. Attend the session VOA, Voice of America. Continue with your good works. I wish you guys Merry Christmas and Happy New Year in advance. Thank you so much. May God bless you. Hello, hello, hello. I'm called Biaranga Arthur from Chatokor Kunjiri, southwestern Uganda. I want to wish all the people who knows me, all my relatives, the friends, and everybody a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Special Christmas greetings to you as well. It's Sunday on Nylon Africa and this is the time we get to relax and reflect. A flashback with music from our collection. Snow is glistening, a beautiful sight. We're happy tonight, walking. Gone away is the bluebird, but here to stay is the bluebird. He sings a love song as we go Walking. Look at in 
the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he is Parson Brown He'll say I am and we'll say no man But you can do the job for me all in town Later on we'll conspire as we sit by the fire To face unafraid the plans that we make Good night. How I hate going out in the storm. But if you really hold me tight, all the way home I'll be warm. And the fire is slowly dying. And my dear, we're still goodbye. But as long as you love me so, let it snow, let it snow and snow. Finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm But if you really grab me tight All the way home I'll be warm Oh, the fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow
That was our Sunday music spot. Hope you enjoyed the music from Nightland Africa here at the English to Africa service of the Voice of America in Washington. Nightline Africa comes to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know by now, we are on air on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nightline Africa team, including producer Nicole Peters and engineer Justin Thwaites, we say a big thank you for joining us. And remember, as the elders say, only the patient one can milk a lion. I'm your host, Peter Clotter in Washington. Good evening, Africa. Yeah, we're with you.